we are on. Do that. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about four aspects of Scripture, um, or four doctrines of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture, the, no, not the necessity, the inerrancy, the clarity, or in other words, the understand the understandability of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, and the sufficiency. So we'll go in order. First is inerrancy. So what is the inerrancy of Scripture? It's kind of a, a negative word, really. So what it means is the Bible contains no error, right? It's inerrant. It's, it does not have any error. So the, the negative version is in, the inerrancy of the Bible means that in its original manuscripts, there was no error. There is no error, or the positive version is that the Bible in its original manuscripts is entirely true in everything it teaches. So usually we use the, the negative word because it's a reaction to people saying there are errors in the Bible. So we'll say, no, there aren't. It's inerrant. So that's really kind of why that term exists the way it does. But in other words, it's we're, 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 what we're talking about is the, the full truthfulness of the Bible. Um, now, sometimes, you, you, you might have heard this word before, infallibility. Have you guys heard that word before? The infallibility of Scripture. That's pretty synonymous with inerrancy. Sometimes people will use infallibility, not all the time, but sometimes they'll use infallibility to mean something a little less than inerrancy and to say the Bible is true in matters of faith and practice, but it's not true in its like historical claims. Not everybody uses it that way, but sometimes they do. So that's why usually... People in theology will argue specifically for inerrancy because it's like, this is clearly what I'm arguing for, the perfection of the Bible kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's why we, we talk about inerrancy specifically, but infallibility in general means the same thing. Sometimes people mean something a little different. Um, and so what does inerrancy not mean? I think this is probably a really important thing to say. Inerrancy does not mean that my interpretation is infallible or inerrant, right? It means the Bible, whatever it's teaching, whether I know what it's teaching or not, is perfect and totally truthful. But there's a difference, right, between what's the... the there's a difference between the fact that the Bible is true and that my interpretation is true. Those are two different things. You know what I'm saying? So that's just something to keep in mind because as we evaluate... Like, okay, how do we understand inerrancy? We're going to have to do some interpreting of the Bible, right? Like, okay, what does this passage mean? You have to evaluate it to argue that it's true or false, either way, right? But either way, there is a difference, just wanted to highlight this between, it's not just, the Bible's infallible, therefore Alden's infallible. That, that's not quite how that works. You, you know, so I just wanted to throw that out there. I know that most people know that, but I think that's helpful to just kind of throw out there. So why do we, why do we argue for inerrancy. Why, why do we do that? So first kind of section of my notes, and it's fine that you guys aren't using it. Some people might use it. Well, actually, no, no one else in here is using it. Okay. Anyway, so the first section of my notes for myself is that scripture actually says that scripture is inerrant, right? So there's here's the negative version. There's a few texts that substantiate the negative version of our view, right? That it's, uh, that it, so John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. That's like, there's no errors in this. Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says. So Jesus is affirming the unbreakability of Scripture, right? It can't be broken. It has to be true. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, right? So Titus is explaining, hey, God never lies. So what he says is going to be totally true, right? And so there's other verses similar to that. But on the positive version, we have John 17-17. Jesus prays in his prayer. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Right? So, okay, Jesus is saying to the Father, what you have said is true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. So, I think in some ways this is an obvious doctrine. I feel like like people probably who are like familiar with Christianity are like, okay, well, of course the Bible's true. Of course that's the claim, right? But Kind of, I'm laying this out because there are certain kind of attacks against the Bible that in particular we're going to kind of look at to show, well, okay, no, that's true in, in a certain sense. You're not quite evaluating it on the right terms, that, that sort of a thing. So that's kind of why I'm laying out. I know this is in some ways really obvious. Um, 
some people will say, I'll just put a note here, I won't read this whole thing. Some people will say that inerrancy is like a new doctrine, that the early church never thought that it was inerrant. Like, this is, this is kind of a new way to talk about it. Like, they, they didn't really understand everything to be completely true. If you're curious, there's a quote from Augustine, who's from the AD 400s, who basically exactly lays out our doctrine of inerrancy. So this isn't a new thing. The Bible has always said this. The church has always said this. Anyway, so there's that. So, okay, here's a, I mentioned this. There's a wrong view out there that inerrancy only applies to matters of faith and practice, but not to the Bible's historical claims. So that's kind of a funny view. We talked about, I, th I think, Elliot, you were here for this. We talked about liberal theology. Were you here for that part? I was, yeah. Yeah, so we're not talking about anyone's political leanings or anything like that. What technically, what liberal theology is, is kind of an, a Christianity, quote-unquote, that's unmoored from its historical claims, from its claims about the miraculous. You, as you hear that, you're probably like, okay, that's no Christianity at all. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. But this is a, was a major view in the 19th, 20th uh, centuries, uh, especially in Germany. It was started in Germany and infiltrated everywhere. So anyway, th this is kind of in part what we're responding to. But that's a view that some people, especially 100, 200 years ago, have held. And so how do, we, how do we talk about that? Well, okay, it's true in the practical things about my faith, but it's not true in terms of everything it says. Well, let's look at a couple of verses. I won't read all of these. I have a huge list, and that's more to overwhelm people than anything. I'm not going to read all of that. Acts 24, 14. This is what Paul says to King Agrippa when he's before him in court. But this I confess to you, King Agrippa, that according to the way which they call a sect, he's talking about Christianity, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So Paul's not dividing between, well, that was a historical event, so that's just a metaphor, but this is real because this has to do with my faith. Well, no, even the history has to do with his faith on Paul's view, right? Um, Romans 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whatever, whatever. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, right? And then I'll, I'll read one more verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And the context of this is Paul is talking about how Israel was thrown into the wilderness in the Old Testament as a punishment. That's a historical event, right? When Israel was thrown into the wilderness, that's not directly my faith, right? That's, that's a historical event. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's like, look, even these events, these historical events happened for our benefit, for our instruction, right? Even, maybe a fun fact, 40% of our Bible consists of historical books from Genesis to Esther in the Old Testament. Let's see where that ends. Somewhere around, for Job, somewhere around here. That's, quote unquote, that's the genre, historical books. And there's one, Acts in the New Testament as well as a historical book. So that's 40% of the Bible. Oh, it's relevant. Wow, no way, man. We talked about inspiration as well. This was last week, how God inspires the words of Scripture. He speaks them actively. So that's also kind of related. If God is speaking, in a lot of ways, inerrancy is just a downstream thought of inspiration. If God has said it, it's going to be true, right? So anyway, I have a huge list if people are interested of some New Testament affirmations of literal Old Testament events. Probably everybody who walks in the doors of mercy is going to understand that's what the Bible says, but I just wrote this big list kind of for overwhelming factor. Like, hey, it's so inconsistent with the Bible to say that. Like, you have to say it's all true or none of it's true, but it's not even fair or reasonable to say only parts of it. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, how we do? How we feeling so far? Makes sense. All right, yep. right on. So a question that people will ask, though, and I think this is something worth spending some time on, can humans write perfect documents? Can humans write perfect documents? So, like, okay, our claim is that this guy, Peter, a fisherman with some serious political attitudes, right? I mean, this guy was a zealot, right? Like, do we really believe that that guy could write a perfect document? Really? Like, he wrote First and Second Peter, and we're saying that document's inerrant. Why can we say that? Well, the prophets themselves 
did not fully understand their own prophecies that God spoke through them. Right? So last week we talked about inspiration, what God has said. Well, now we're talking about inerrancy. Why are these writings, which are technically human in some ways, why is it okay to talk about them as inerrant? Well, they weren't necessarily responsible for their own prophecies. That's the claim here, right? Like when Peter, so a, a verse here, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 10 and 11. Peter's writing about salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating that Christ would be coming with subsequent glories. That's a paraphrase of the last half. But they, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring. So the prophets are writing, and they're kind of like, Jeepers, God, I don't, I don't know. All right, I'll just say it. I'll, I'm just saying it. You know, but they didn't necessarily know all the details of what their prophecy was even pointing to, timing, person, what's going on. Another one, this is in 2 Peter now, not 1 Peter. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 19 says that the prophets did not write their prophecies because of their own understanding or their own interpretation. They just said it. So, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, morning star rise in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I think that's kind of like a, a nail in the coffin there. But they, Peter's saying, look, we're just saying exactly what God's saying. Like we, I, I'm not even interpreting what I'm saying. I might, I might do that later, but I'm not even interpreting it now. I'm just writing it. Even if they didn't understand their own prophecy, they simply said what they said. Welcome, Hans. Morning. So, good morning. This kind of brings us to authorial intent. So this is kind of a new phrase we haven't heard before, and I'm trying. I've tried to make notes if I'm going to say something we haven't talked about before to make sure that I define these things. But authorial intent means the intention of the human author. So whether that's Moses, first five books of the Bible, Joshua, Obadiah, Peter, Paul, whatever. The, the, the New Testament, Old Testament author. That's what authorial intent refers to. And so sometimes people will say, well, all we need to do is find the authorial intent and then we know the answer. Well, or the answer of what, what the text means. But I think Peter is saying that that's not true. Peter's like, I don't know all my intentions. I'm, I don't know God's intention. I know my intentions write what God said, but... God probably has more in mind than I do as Peter, right? I'm not Peter. I have never written the Bible. I never will. But so anyway, I, I only highlight that because what the human author intended is a valuable study, but it's not an exhaustive study. It's not a sufficient study. Does that kind of make sense? Because God probably has more in mind than the human with a finite mind has. How, how, how are we doing so far? Cool. All right. Cool. <coughs> And then one more, and then we're kind of going to get into some specifics, but one more, and I, I think I'll, I'll open this up to, to the group here and see if there's any specifics after this, um, just because I have some examples, but those might not be the most relevant to you. Anyway, so one last thing. When evaluating inerrancy, we must consider the original meaning to the original audience. So sometimes people have said, the Bible's not written to you, it's written for you. I don't know if I love that. I guess I just said it, so I, I guess I like it enough, but it, if I, okay, okay, oh, if I write my wife a love letter, I, I'm just kind of thinking this off, off my head, but if I write my wife a love letter and I give it to Elliot, okay, I know that'd be weird, but bear with me. <laughs> Elliot, maybe Elliot's wondering, what does it look like to write a love letter, okay, maybe, I don't know, but, and, and so I show him my love letter that I've written to my wife. Elliot's not gonna read that and be like, whoa, Alden feels this way about me? Oh, no, like, okay, let, let's read it for what it is. You, you know what I mean? So, so I want, I think that my, I don't even know. Well, I'll just show you some real examples. I, I don't, maybe that didn't nail it. Anyway, um, some people will say, some people will say, hey, like, nobody would offer their son a snake, right? That, that's ridiculous. So that's the claim that Luke is making when 
Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, would instead give him a serpent? If he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? You know, if you then, even though you're evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That makes sense. Nobody would, would give their son a snake, right? Well, I read a missionary biography where people were translating the Bible for this people group who thought snake was a delicacy. <laughs> they read this passage and they were like, I, I, this is so confusing. I mean, it's honoring to give a snake to a son. <laughs> you know, that's like not what I imagine in my conduct. I've never eaten snake. I kind of hope I never do, right? But anyway, so is the Bible wrong for them? No, not quite. This is kind of what I was trying to do with the Elliot level note thing. I don't know. This is probably a better example because I've thought about it. Um, but when, when, we, when we give that passage to these people, what we would want to say is, hey, okay, to the Jews, the original audience, they didn't like snake. I mean, there's some background like Satan was a snake. This is bad news bears for the Jewish people, right? So that's why Jesus is saying, what father among you, right? There's a context to what he's saying, just because the context isn't relatable doesn't make it false. It makes it apply in a certain way, you know? So maybe to them you would say, okay, and actually the, what the translators ended up doing, I'm not advocating for a method of translation here, but they were like, what son among you would, what father would give your son a venomous angry snake? You, you know, like, like because... You don't like it. I want you to not like it. That's what was happening to the Jews of the original context. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's a, a qualifier for inerrancy. It doesn't mean no father would give a snake because there are fathers, but no father among you, among them, right? There was a context to that. Similar with the mustard seed. Jesus mentions in one case the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. That is technically, scientifically, globally false. Right? The mustard seed's not the smallest seed of the earth, but it was the smallest seed to them. They all understood it proverbially as the smallest of all seeds. So Jesus meets them where they're at. All right, so you guys know this. And then he makes an illustration of the kingdom of heaven. He's not making a scientific claim about the size of mustard seed. He's making a scientific claim about the kingdom of heaven and using an example that's relevant to them. Does that, does that kind of make sense? So, okay, I think we've, we've belabored that. So, okay. We've been doing this 15 minutes, and I had 15 minutes more of kind of examples, specific cases where we want to talk about inerrancy or, or issues where people have accused the Bible of being false in some places and different legitimate Christian responses. But And we can do my examples, but I'm kind of wondering, do you guys have any examples in your life where things maybe you've heard kind of an accusation, oh, the Bible's not true because da 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 and you didn't know how to answer, maybe you have a question of your own, I kind of want to open it up just to see if there's anything particular to you guys that would be most relevant. Do you guys have anything like that? I'm happy to just use my notes, but I wanted to ask I you I wish text. I could be more detailed, but I've definitely heard a lot of stuff to the effect of, you know, you were just talking about the, the historical part of the Bible, mm -hmm. that that is somehow like archaeology and such goes against that or something. And hmm. I, I haven't really done the deep dive into that. I wish I could have. Sure. But yeah. Sure. I'm trying to think about what they might be thinking about Elliot. <clears throat> so there is a bit of, not a bit, there is some, in geology, some dispute about whether or not there was a flood or how local it was. So that's like a scientific kind of dispute. Yeah. It's not so much. Uh, but so I, I will say this in general, when we see in the Bible that there's a, and a lot of this is probably going to be case by case, right? Um, like, okay, was Bethlehem real? The answer is indisputably yes, Bethlehem was real. But, so, but that's kind of what, when the Bible mentions a town or like a city, the past 200, 100 years of archaeology has done much to affirm the historical claims of the Bible. Okay. There hasn't yet been... A definitive disproving of hey that didn't happen that that event couldn't have happened then you know um, there are towns we don't have history for so there are some of those but there used to be many of those and in the past two 100 years we've done a lot of work and we've now realized oh actually that's what Luke was talking about it was called something different 
okay, that happened. You know, that sort of thing. So maybe a lot of those examples brought up are maybe just a lot of, you know, cherry picking or stuff or, you know, misunderstandings. For the most, if someone is trying to disprove the Bible on the grounds that this town doesn't exist in history, they haven't looked at a lot of other documents that aren't even the New Testament where we don't know anything about those things. The, the New Testament has a lot of affirmations going toward it from other archaeologists, archaeological studies. So I would guess it's probably cherry picking. If it's like a YouTuber or something, just, you know, that's probably a cherry picker doing some straw man action. But there are legitimate questions we can ask. But to say it's been disproved because we don't have a record of this town is a really poor historical argument. It just kind of, regardless of your views about God. Yeah. Does that kind of address it? I know it was yeah, a vague idea that you had anyway, but is that okay? Yeah. Are there any other kind of... That, that's a great example. Are there any other examples um, that kind of like nag at your guys' mind or that you've heard before you didn't know how to answer about inerrancy? Sometimes people will point out like, hey, the order of events in Matthew and Luke is different. Like, this must be wrong. But honestly, I'm not sure either of them necessarily are doing a chronological argument. In some cases, there's definitely like, okay, these are categorized in terms of like the type of event that it was. It's not necessarily a chronological sequence, that kind of thing, whereas the other one might be doing that. So stuff like that. Um, so that maybe that's a common one that you've you might hear. I can also just do do whatever I have here. If you guys don't have any, I, okay, right up, cool. Let's do. Okay. All right, all right, all right. I will skip one of these. Okay, okay, okay. I, I think I, I think I know how we're gonna do this. Um, so there are colloquialisms in the Bible. A colloquialism. Oh man, I, I practiced this too. Colloquialism. What that is is an established phrase with a non-literal meaning. So for example, the sunset. Suns don't set, do they? The earth rotates around, this, revolves around the sun and it rotates, right? So the sun isn't literally setting, but we all say that. There have, this is a minority, but there have literally been scientists, atheists who say the Bible is wrong because the sun doesn't set. That's, I'm sorry, get over it. I mean, no, nobody talks like that. You don't talk like that. Even if you do, you're weird. You know, I mean, that's just, come on. Anyway, that's so pathetic. Anyway, that, that is, that's out there. Um, maybe a more substantial one is there weren't, uh, or quotation marks as we use them today weren't used the same way in the New Testament, Old Testament, either of the periods. There were ways to identify when you were quoting someone. That, that was possible uh, both in Greek and in Hebrew. But the way that they did, like, the way that we do, like, scientific precision, like, if I were to quote a book today and say, let's say Hans wrote a book, Hans's master's thesis, Hans gets... 80 you newtons or whatever the units are but if hans got 80.72 and that was the quote but i quoted him having said 80 i'd probably get criticized in my thesis if i quoted him that way you know what i mean there's a precision or like a if i'm quoting a novel i would quote the novel verbatim i wouldn't give the gist and offer it as a quote with quotation marks you know but that wasn't their philosophy, uh, even just how they operated as people, as in literature. The scientific precision that we now value was pretty foreign to that culture, so that's probably a part of why we see New Testament authors quoting Old Testament authors, not exactly verbatim, but pretty darn close. They're definitely faithful to what the gist of it was. It's not like they're changing the meaning or something. That Most people don't think that. But they're like, hey, whoa, this isn't exact. You know, well, well yeah, you're kind of imposing your 21st century scientific standards on a culture that had no framework for that. That wasn't the point for them. Hey, this is the point. The Bible says it. All right, move on. You know, that's kind of what they were doing. So that maybe that's a more one that you've noticed before if you've compared the Old Testament New Testament versions of quotes before. Um, but that, yeah, that probably, probably does matter. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, let's see. The New Testament 
authors sometimes quote faulty versions of the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament, sorry, the Old Testament that they had was, we mentioned this in the previous class, the Septuagint, or in other words, the LXX, <clears throat> Greek for 70, right? So there were 70 translators on this translation from Hebrew Old Testament to Greek because they were Greek-speaking people and they wanted their Old Testament translated in their language. So that's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But as, in, as is the case of all translations, it wasn't a perfect translation, right? But that was the translation that even some of the New Testament authors had access to. Some of them had access to the original Hebrew. We see that even in my sermon prep of Matthew. I saw how, he, how Matthew did not quote the Septuagint, and instead he went directly translated from the Hebrew because the Septuagint translated it differently than Matthew did. So that's how I can know, how we know, not just me. I didn't discover this in some novel way. I rely on people much smarter than me. But Matthew had access, at least in some passages, some portions of the Hebrew Old Testament, but that wasn't the case for all of them. So when they quote a, a version of the Old Testament that's imperfect in some small ways, that doesn't necessarily legitimize the faulty translation. That's not God saying, hey, grammar doesn't matter. You know, No, that's not what's going on. Calvin is the first person that I know of who said this. There might have been someone who said this earlier. But he, he is the one who said, he's the one that I know of having said, look, their quotations don't legitimize a faulty translation or a faulty version of the text. But their argument is still faithful to the meaning of that text, even though it is faulty. And thus, since it's faithful to the meaning of that text, and that we do know for sure, that makes it true. So that's inerrant. It's still true. That's not God saying, hey, don't worry about translation. That's not them saying, hey, this is exactly, right, scientific precision quoting, this is exactly what they said. That's really not their argument. Their argument is, hey, this is what God said before, so here's something that God says now. You know what I'm saying? Does that, does that maybe, that's, maybe that's kind of a foreign thought to some people. So I kind of, are we, do we feel good about that? Right on, no questions. Okay, perfect. So there are moments where the Bible records false or erroneous statements or reports. What's one really silly example? Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But there is a God. What do you mean there's no God? Well, okay, he's recording the sentence. They say, so that's a really simple principle. I know that nobody's struggling with that. But there are potentially some cases where people will say, hey, that guy is quoted having said this, but that's not right. Well, hey, the Bible doesn't necessarily affirm everything everyone's saying. I'm reading Job right now. Man, Eliphaz and Job and his, oh, Job's friends are crummy friends. They're pretty crummy. Have you, I don't know if you guys have ever read Job, but man, that's not God saying, oh yeah, this is, they're the man. This is awesome. Like God even says Job's a righteous man, but Job sins a couple times. I mean, he literally says, I'm going to fight God. I mean, he, he says that in Job and God calls him a righteous man. Does that mean everything Job said is right? No, Job is a character in a story and God is teaching a lesson through that story. Now, what I'm not saying is, Oh, 1 Corinthians is kind of a, a story and you need the general thrust. No, I'm not talking about it's only true for faith and practice, but the history is not important. That's what I'm saying. But when, specifically when the Bible quotes people having said things, that you see the difference there? Paul is teaching something in a letter. That's, that's real. But when Job is set, found having said things, that it doesn't necessarily make Job correct. We need to evaluate what these people in the stories are saying similar to maybe Joseph's brothers who threw him in a pit. It's absolutely true that they threw him in a pit. They're absolutely wrong to do so. <laughs> does that, does that kind of make sense? Okay. Um, the rest, some, of the, some people think that the author of Second Chronicles got pi wrong by 4.2% because the circumference of a circle. It's like, dude, he's estimating, man. He's not making, you know what I mean? Th this kind of stuff. But... Um, maybe more importantly, God tells Abraham, hey, your people will be exiled 400 years. But then Exodus says it happened after 430 years. Well, what happened? Galatians 3.17 says, hey, what God said would come 
came forth 30 years afterwards. The promise was fulfilled. So even promises with respect to time are not necessarily precise, if that makes sense. 30 years, okay, 7.5% error if you want to apply our standards to today. But that, it happened. 400 years, 430 years. Paul's even saying, hey, look, it happened after 430 years. So even though it says 400, Paul's like, all right, 430, it happened. The promise was fulfilled. You know, so there's a certain imprecision that the Bible is okay with that we as 21st century scientists aren't necessarily always so comfortable with. Does that, does that kind of line up? Does that make sense what I'm saying? All right, cool, cool, cool. Quick note about Stephen's speech. Some people think, I'm not going to go into all the details of this. I read a bunch of commentaries to like because I was like, I, this is nagging me. Some people will say that Stephen in his speech in Acts 7 got some details wrong. I'm not convinced. But whether that's true or not, in some ways, actually, it doesn't affect our doctrine of inerrancy, does it? It affects how much we can admire Stephen's chronology of the book of Genesis. But that, that's fine. Stephen, Luke is quoting Stephen. Luke, the author of Acts, is quoting Stephen having said something before the temple, and then he gets stoned, right? But that may just be Luke saying, hey, this is what Stephen said. All right, he got some stuff wrong, and this is just what he said. You know, now, again, I'm not, there's some, there's a lot there. But, and we can talk about that after this, and I'd be happy to do that, and I would love to do it. But... As far as inerrancy goes, just because a character in the story says something, that's something worth evaluating. You, you know what I mean? That's not necessarily a teaching. The Bible's teaching that they said it. Is that, that line up? All right. Cool, 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 cool. Okay. There's one more that I want to make sure we highlight. This is, this is one that can tend to, to bother us a good amount, but I think it brings us back to the idea of the original manuscripts. So I brought up the original manuscripts early on that inerrancy is that the Bible in its original manuscripts contains no error and is completely true, right? So there are a couple of places in the Old Testament historical books where specifically numbers don't match up. So for example, 2 Samuel 10.18 is referring to the same event as 1 Chronicles 19.18, but the amount of chariots... In 2 Samuel 700, the amount of chariots in 1 Chronicles are 7,000. What gives? Similar in a couple of other places with horsemen or men of Israel and Judah, whatever. I have a, a chart here. And it's true that the manuscripts that we now have do have conflicts with those numbers specifically. What do we do about that? We're, we're saying, and this I think in some ways is the one that will probably be the most relevant to us as we're just our faithful Christians reading our Bibles. There, there may be moments where we notice that. So I wanted to bring it up. Honestly, this isn't even the most compelling argument that even non-believers think that they have. And why, why is that? Why, why is this not that big of a deal? So a few things to note. Remember, we don't have any of the original manuscripts of either the Old or the New Testament. What we have is copies of copies of copies that have been well-preserved, better than any other document in history. But still, let's call it what it is, we don't have the original documents. So what do we do about this? So something to note, the only time that there is a true direct conflict like this is only with numbers. It's only with numbers. And in the Old Testament. Why is that relevant? In particular, numbers were really hard to copy. The Hebrew characters look kind of like, maybe you have something like this with like three dots on it or something. But maybe there's also a fourth dot that you miss and then the scribe, you know, that sort of a thing. So that's one really likely reason why we think that copying numbers may well be the reason behind these discrepancies. And in other historical documents, kind of Bible aside, just literature, numbers are really tough to keep in a textual tradition, like a tradition where you have an original copy, copy, copy. We often find numbers in particular get janked up all the time in Hebrew. That's unfortunate. There's no doubt about that. That's unfortunate. But that, I think that there's a couple of other ways, and I'll, I'll identify those. I think that's the most compelling reason for something like this because I mean the Jews of the time they were really 
meticulous about comparing and knowing what's the middle word of this book. They cared a lot about their text, right? They wouldn't have, I think, they wouldn't have been okay with like a clear conflict. Like I think the Jews would have had the same numbers. I, 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 I believe that. And as we have throughout history, there have been a number of other times where we've thought we've had conflicts as we've studied the meaning of certain Greek words and Hebrew words, we're realizing, oh, those two are saying the same thing. They're not saying conflicting things, that sort of thing. So as research unfolds, we've been finding new and new manuscripts. It was within the past hundred years that we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That did a lot to help us with inerrancy, actually. So as time goes on, I believe we're going to find, if we do end up finding manuscripts closer and closer, I think we're going to find uniformity rather than conflict. But the other way to talk about this, and this is, I'll admit this is possible, though I, I kind of doubt it. It could be that each author, similar to recording Stephen faithfully, if Stephen even made an error, some people will say, well, hey, each author of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, they faithfully copied their original source, and those original sources differed. But each of them inerrantly copied potentially an errant original source. Okay, I, I get that. I, as I read those books, I don't get the impression that they're like deferring to some original source, to be honest with you. So that's why that doesn't feel compelling to me. That may be the case. But I anyway, this is what I find to be the most convincing solution to that especially because it exclusively occurs with numbers exclusively it doesn't occur with like normal words um and so what i guess a summary of what i'm saying is if we had all the data we would resolve all the problems carl henry says something funny about this he says okay look people reject inerrancy because we don't have the original manuscripts which are inerrant but on their view, we don't have the original errant manuscripts either. So that was kind of like a wise Alec response. I kind of liked that, so I threw that in there. Um, but I know that, that maybe that might be a little disturbing to, to learn that. Anyway, does that kind of make sense? Do you guys have questions about that? Right on. Makes sense. Right on. You guys are smarter than I am, man. When I first learned some of this stuff, I was like, what? You know. Anyway. Um, a resource for you that I, I want to recommend is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, you can find it online. I've also put a hyperlink in there. That's a pretty succinct summary of a lot of what we've talked about. It's basically a whole bunch of theologian, pastor, scholars who got together for three days in Chicago and wrote a document and said, this is what we believe, and they all went away. And it's like still one of the more influential documents that exist because those guys just have a bunch of clout, and I think that's kind of cool. So I threw that in there for you guys. Okay, so that's, that's inerrancy. In the original manuscripts, what God says is completely true and free from error. All right. Now we're moving into the clarity of Scripture. In other words, the understandability of Scripture. So the clarity of Scripture. Here's a definition of the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is understandable. Okay? It requires, and there's a few things, the Holy Spirit, a willingness to obey, prayer, time, and effort. So it's understandable, but you do need to try it. And you do need to be a Christian with a miraculous indwelling Holy Spirit, God showing you what it means, right? But those things accounted for, Scripture's understandable. This is one of my favorite doctrines, I think, one of them, because it's so, like, empowering, I feel like, to just normal people, and I love that. It's like, I could be out of a job, you know? That's a good thing, um, and I really mean that. I mean, I like getting paid, but, you know, like, man, people can, like, walk on their own feet. Now, okay, uh, there's a difference between the scriptures being hard to understand and the scriptures being understandable. Now, I read this last week, and I'll read it again. Peter acknowledges that some scriptures are hard to understand. He literally says about Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all relate to that. I mean, 1 Corinthians, there's a couple questions I have, you know, and I, I don't, yeah, I, I wrestle with, with this. And, uh, anyway. But what Peter isn't saying, and I, I do, I, I don't want to be like a, a stickler, but one thing he's not saying is that they're not understandable, right? He's saying they're hard to understand, but they're understandable, at least that, 
Peter isn't technically saying one way or the other, but he, he, he's saying, all he's saying is these are hard to understand. He's not saying they're ununderstandable, you know? So there is some effort that comes, and I think the Bible is going to tell us that, and I have a few examples to, to show with that. But sometimes, one reason I think this is such an encouraging doctrine is because at least with, with non-believers who feel content in their non-belief, they will, I've heard this anyway, maybe you guys have too, people say, oh, the Bible's impossible to interpret confidently. I mean, there's so many interpretations. I mean, translation, nobody knows what these words mean, you know, stuff like that. And I, yeah, I don't like that. Any, I, I think that's wrong. Anyway, now, okay, look, are there controversies? Yes. In particular, this isn't always the case, but I think a lot of times, when Christians have a big conflict that's hard to resolve from Scripture, that might be because God didn't say what he said to solve your controversy. Maybe, for example, I'm going to give a lame one. If I want to have a controversy about how long my fingernails will be in heaven, I'm going to have trouble collecting data about that from the Bible. I really will. That's not what God talks about, man. God talks about himself and our salvation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. But, man, when people get in conflicts about stuff like, most people don't get in conflicts like that. But I use that as a dramatic example to kind of point out the obvious. God didn't say what he said to teach us about everything. He, he said what he said to teach us about what we need to know, right? So, anyway, okay. A few examples of the clarity or the understandability of Scripture. I won't read all of these, but there are parts where the Bible is literally addressed to children. To children! Oh, man, it's awesome! Okay, you shall teach these laws diligently to your children. You shall, this is Deuteronomy 6, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. All the time. You don't have to even have a Bible in front of you. Most of them didn't. But you can talk about what God says in his word nonetheless. Like, man, this is understandable. It's for children, even. It's for talking on the way to the coffee shop. Like, oh, yeah, man, this isn't so complicated. You need a theologian to do it. That's just not the case, you know? They're helpful, no doubt. I hope I'm helpful. I'm not a theologian, but yeah, I hope I'm a help, but it's similar. Okay, Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. That's like a kind of a long sentence that Paul's like offering an argument to, right? This and this, this is a promise in order that, right? He's giving it to children. He's giving them, hey guys, I'm giving you like rationale for why you should obey your parents in the Lord. You know, like this is for kids. We might feel, oh man, maybe I should water this down, but I think scripture is written to children. It's okay. Like, let's give it to them. It's understandable, you know? Um, even uh, the Psalms talk about how the law of the Lord is perfect, making wise the simple. That's Psalm 19, verse 7. Making wise the simple. Are you simple-minded? Oh, then it's impossible. You'll never understand. That's not what he's saying. No, this makes you wise, actually. You can get this, and it will make you wiser. You know, even if you're dumb, you can do it. You know? like, it's for you if you're dumb, in fact. Making wise the simple, right? There are other parts where um, Paul addresses his letter to the whole church, not to the elders, not to the, just the church, to, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Galatians 1-2, to the churches of Galatia, Philippians 1-1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. But the overseers and the deacons, it's not to them, it's to the church with them, right? Like, this is for the church, everybody in the church. This is accessible to them. So I think that's really important. Um, and there are some people as well who will say, well, most of the Bible is understandable, but not all of it. Well, Luke 24, Jesus says this in rebuke to the disciples who aren't believing in him. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I think we have to say all of scripture is understandable. More on that in a moment, but all. Jesus says all, right? It's not like there's portions that are clear and portions that... If there's an issue that we're having with the Bible, that's an issue for us. And that's not a judgment call. I mean, that's true for me. It's true for all of us. We all have issues. We, we all stumble in many ways. James 3 or at least in James. But anyway, the point is, the issue is not that scripture isn't clear. The issue is our perception of it, right? But even so, all of scripture is still said to be accessible to us. All that the prophets have spoken. More on that in a minute. Um, okay, sometimes people will say, well, look, we just, 
we are deaf to the original audience, so we don't know. Like, how did the original audience hear this? We're just not sure. So this is not possible for us to understand, but it would have been possible for them. Jesus doesn't seem to share that opinion. Jesus insists to, old, to New Testament people that the Old Testament was understandable. He rebukes, in particular, the Bible teachers. This is why he has this, uh, this tone. He's, he's rebuking people who shepherd people wrong. So he's, this isn't how he talks to normal people. But he says, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Have you not read it? The issue is, in Jesus' mind, you, you must not have read this. Like, this is very accessible to you guys, you Pharisees, you Jewish rulers. Have you not read in the law, how on the Sabbath day? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Have you never read in the scriptures? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Boom, 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 boom. Jesus' issue, in Jesus' mind, the issue of the Pharisees is they're not reading it right. But guys, you can. It's possible to read it right. But here's what their issue was. Their issue was they weren't believers. And believers do not find the scripture clear. There's a number of verses here, but one of them, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. I think this is kind of huge. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that's, if there's a controversy, this is what this is not saying. If there's a controversy, right? Oh man, you must not be a believer. You disagree with me. <laughs> that, that's, not, that's, that, that's not cool, man. You know? No, no, we don't do that. When we, like, so when we talk about controversy, this, this kind of goes back to interpretation, right? Hey, my interpretation is not infallible. The, the Bible is, but my recognition of it is not. We all stumble in many ways, so I want to be humble and learn. Da, 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 da. Yeah, okay, amen. But there are people who don't understand anything in the Bible. Ultimately, that, that's Jesus, right? Like, like, Jesus is all of what the Bible points to, and if they don't understand him, they're not understanding how to read the Bible itself, right? So anyway, they're spiritually discerned. So, does that make sense? Okay. Um, requirements for understanding the Bible. I mentioned a few of them. One of them is the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit. So, I read a portion of this passage already. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So, we have the Holy Spirit to help us understand what God gave us. Right? So that's one function of the Holy Spirit, and that's one thing that we need if we're going to understand the Bible as it really is. And then it goes on to say, you know, the natural person doesn't accept the things of God. You know, that, that's the context there. If you have the Holy Spirit, you get it. But if you don't, you don't. That's one way in which the scripture is not clear, is if you're not a believer. Um, uh, let's see. A willingness to obey is another one. Um, so John 8, 43 Jesus says this to the Pharisees, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You don't want to listen to me. That's one other reason why the scripture might not be clear. If we, as faithful disciples of Jesus, maybe, are in a season of disobedience, we might stop perceiving what the Bible's really saying. I do think there's like a, a very spiritual, miraculous aspect to understanding God's word. So if we find that, maybe it's we're hard-hearted and we're, we can't bear to hear God's word. Prayer, there's a lot of uh, passages about this, but one of them, Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes, David says, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, but we require an eye opening, don't we? You know, man, God, I'm not going to understand this spiritual stuff if you don't give me spiritual insight. It's kind of connected to the Holy Spirit as well, but prayer is an aspect of understanding God's word. Also time, You'll notice a lot of people with gray hair know God well. You know, that, like wisdom comes with walking with him, you know. Married people love each other more than people who are like young and in love. They've just had seasoned experience together. But one of those um, passages that we could look to, Joshua 1.8, You shall meditate on God's law day and night so that you can be careful to do according to all that's written in it. If I've read the Bible once, and that'd be a, that's a big milestone. A lot of people haven't read the Bible before, right? Like back to back. If I read the whole thing, I get it. All right, Lord, that was cool. What's next? You know, well, hey, no, actually, if you're going to be careful to do according to all that's written in it, you're going to have to meditate on it day and night over and over again, time and time again. So time is required. Also effort. Ezra 7.10, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do and teach 
his statutes and rules in Israel. You got to set your heart to study if to, to understand. Second Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy, for chapter two, seven. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. You got to think. Like, it does require some legwork. Um, okay. So far, so good. One difference. This is a going to be significant as far as a difference between us and Roman Catholic teaching is that Roman Catholics actually don't believe in the understandability of scripture for each person to be able to perceive it uh, with authority is what they would say. So they believe that it's only the church that has the right to interpret scripture authoritatively. I'm not going to read their catechism. I have a quote here, but basically they say that the it's been entrusted to the church alone to be the living teaching office, which is able to interpret the Bible. So they think that the final authority on what the Bible means is, is their church, is what they think. I don't think that's right. I think what, this, what the Bible is saying is that it's the Holy Spirit in me, in fact, giving me insight into what God is saying. It doesn't derive its authority from the church approving it. It derives its authority from God's in me and he's saying so. Now, if, say, Hans and I have a disagreement, okay, one or both of us is wrong. Let's see what the Holy Spirit is saying. You, you know, And that's an open question between Hans and I in that case, right? But just because the church comes in and says, well, Hans is right. I'd like to have some illumination myself. Maybe we could talk about it. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's a difference. Um What's a good verse? Okay, 1 John 2, 27. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. But the anointing that you received from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. That verse is awesome for many reasons. One of them is, hey, we don't need the church to tell us what to believe. We have an anointing. The Holy Spirit is in us affirming. He's no lie. He's teaching me everything. I don't need the church to teach me anything, actually. People like me, on some level, are unnecessary. The only reason we have people like me is because God said, look, okay, go appoint elders and teachers and pay them to do it. Okay, and so we're supposed to, but it's not required. What if a church doesn't have that? What if there's doesn't have anything like that? Hey, that's okay. Y'all have the Holy Spirit. Y'all are a church. You should probably find a pastor. That's like in line with what the New Testament says. But it's not because, woe is me. I don't have a church to tell me what to believe. That's not what's going on. You guys have the Holy Spirit. You're the ones appointing the elder, in fact. You know, so anyway, that's, we love, we love our Catholic friends. And we, oh, I, I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but I disagree with our beloved Catholic friends about that. And I think this is a pretty significant point. I think each believer should feel empowered, rightly so, that he or she can read his or her Bible and know God. I think that's important. Anyway, all right, praise God. Okay, moving on. The necessity of Scripture. We'll probably cruise through this in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, but basically, I, I don't think this will be a, a, a major surprise to any of us, but that Scripture is necessary. Scripture is necessary. What does that mean? The necessity of Scripture says this. The Bible is required for knowing the gospel and knowing God's will. The Bible's required for knowing the gospel and knowing God's will. I don't look at a tree and say, oh, Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I don't need a tree to tell me that. I can't, a tree can't tell me that. The Bible tells me that. There are things that God's creation does tell us, and that's going to be awesome. That's why I brought up a tree. I, I think I prematurely brought that up, so bear with me. I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. I, I saw your face, and I was like, I, I did something wrong, and I did do something wrong. Okay, but back to our definition. So the Bible's required, right? Okay, amen. But kind of a, a nuance to that, it is possible to hear faithful summaries of the Bible and therefore know the gospel and God's will. That's possible. Many of us have not read the Bible cover to cover, and many of us sometimes wish that we meditate on God's law day and night more than we actually do. Okay, yes. But if I, if I can't on hand memorize and remember and have access to every single verse in the Bible, that's not what we're talking about right now, right? What I'm talking about is the Bible is what reveals these truths to us, which we can then summarize and, and give to people, right? But we do need the Bible to tell us those things. Ultimately, where do we get it? It's only the Bible. It's the Bible alone. That's the great Protestant doctrine, sola scriptura, right? Okay. I'll, I'll offer 
a verse that there's a lot of them. Um, Romans 10 is one of Romans 10 is kind of the great call to, to, to missions. And it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So that, I'm going to pause there. That means, hey, we need people to tell people what's going on in here. We need that. They need to hear it. It needs to be preached. And it goes on. Um, verse 17 concludes with that section. So, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How are people to believe in Jesus on this side of the new covenant? They hear what the Bible says, the God's word, and that's what gives them saving faith, right? So also it's necessary for knowing God's will. This one probably we all understand, okay, how does God want me to love him? Well, I should probably read the Bible to find out. I think that's natural, but to, to make sure we've said it, um, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So, okay, how do I know how to have a pure way? How to have a pure life? According to your word. I, I make sure my life is in line with your word. Um, so, but there are some things that we don't need the Bible to know. And one of those things is that God exists. God exists. Romans 1, 19 what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's why I was mentioning a tree before. That was, was out of context. I, I see that now. But I think what Romans 119 is saying here is like, man, I'm looking at the ocean. I'm looking at the world. I'm looking at this tree. Somebody made this, man. Somebody infinitely powerful made this. Someone who, we talk about intelligent design. Someone who's smart did this. I think that's what Romans 1.19 is saying. So we're able to perceive without the Bible, all right, there's a maker. Like somebody's out there, you know, but we don't know that it's Jesus, do we? We don't know that from looking at a tree or looking at the ocean or whatever. Um, and this is a difference between... Um, general revelation and special revelation. Maybe you guys have heard these terms. My guess is probably some of you haven't. General revelation is what God reveals to all people. That's why it's called general, but it's revelation. He, he, he made it, right? So it, it reveals him. So that's something like the sky or a tree or beautiful rocks or the globe, right? Things that show that God exists. Whereas special revelation is more particular, more miraculous, you might say. Maybe that's a prophetic word from God or a dream or a vision. You know, there's lots of that in the Old and New Testament. Or the Bible itself is special revelation. This is special. This, this doesn't just show me God exists. Wow. This shows me who God is and how I can honor him. Stuff like that. Um, we can also know some morality without the Bible. What I mean by that is, um, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll quote Romans, Romans 2.14. When Gentiles who don't have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. The law. They show that the work of God is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. So, th there's a lot there. But for our purposes, there are people who have never heard about God, but who do the right thing just because it's in them. You know, most cultures value the truth, for example. Most cultures value not beating each other and killing each other. There are exceptions. There are, But for the most part, you can see God's moral influence on just nature itself. Like It's obvious to us in some ways. Not all of it, right? I'm not going to know that I'm supposed to... Because even, I was going to say Sabbath, like a rest day, right? Not that we need to legally take a rest day, but even most people probably recognize you should take a rest. Maybe that's not. Anyway, the morality of God is kind of built into us, right? It's not all of this, all that's in the Bible is not specifically built in, but a lot of it is. Um, okay, so anyway, last point, and we'll do this quickly. The sufficiency of Scripture. Oh, sorry, I, I did, are, we, are we good? Do we... We're on the same page. Okay, cool. 
I know of someone who goes, are we together? So maybe I'll start saying, are we together? Uh, I, I like that. Are we together? Okay, sufficiency of Scripture. Here's the sufficiency of Scripture definition. Scripture is all we need in order to know God and to obey him. And it's universally applicable. Scripture is applicable to me. It's applicable to Elliot and Max and Hans and everyone on this recording, everyone in the world. Scripture is universally applicable. And that's unique about Scripture in particular. That's what makes Scripture, in part, that's what makes Scripture sufficient. Why do we say Scripture is sufficient? Well, Psalm 119, you'll notice I'm quoting Psalm 119 a lot. Psalm 119 is all about the Bible. So that's one reason why it comes up in doctrines of the Bible. So, but anyway, Psalm 119, verse 1, the very first verse of the whole, this is the longest chapter in the Bible too, and it's all about the Bible. But anyway, blessed are those whose way is blameless. What's the other type of blameless life? Who walk in the law of the Lord. So to walk in the law of the Lord is to be blameless. Even Paul admits that, hey, if you follow the law, perfect. You're perfect. Of course, nobody does that, right? That, that's our problem. We need Jesus to die for us because we don't obey the law. But if we could obey the law, if we could perfectly obey all of God's commands, we wouldn't need Jesus. Our problem is that we don't do that. Yes and amen. Jesus has come. Thank you, Lord. But in order to know how to obey God, the, the implication there is scripture is all we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need further opinions or professional opinions or an analyst or whatever. Now, all of those things are good, right? Like counselors are good, like teachers are good, but scripture, scripture is all we need. That's all we need in order to be blameless. Similar, 2 Timothy 3.16. You, you guys have probably heard this verse before. All scriptures breathed out by God. That's inspiration. We talked about that. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is it that makes me complete and equipped for everything I will need to do? It's all scripture, which is breathed out by God. That's what makes me complete and equipped for every good work. It's our duty then to apply those sufficient words to our lives in faithful ways, right? So it's not the case that I just read it and I'm all set. I need to read it and apply it, right? Right. That's that's kind of the whole thing, right? And that the Holy Spirit will empower us to do that, help us, Lord. Um, but that's what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. How are we feeling? Are we, are we together? All right, cool. Um, we're almost done here. So a question that this will inevitably bring up, and we'll talk more about this later, the, the question of continued prophecy, right? Is prophecy still active today? Are there still prophets today? That's a good question. Come back several weeks from now. We'll talk about whether or not prophecy continues. I don't want to open that right now. But for now, what we have to say, if there is still active prophecy today, that's an if, and I, I know that, it must be, if there's any revelation at all about God, it must be consistent with scripture and not universal as scripture is. Scripture is universal. That the man of God, the, just all of them, every man of God, every person of God is equipped for every good work because of the sufficiency of scripture. But if there, if there is to be additional revelation, it won't be the man of God. It will be more localized if there is a continuation of that. Now, remember the canon, we talked about the canon, the books of the Bible. The canon is closed. There's no additional scripture. There's no more universal applicability. Um, so that at least we need to just say that in terms of the sufficiency of scripture. If we are even gonna consider what other revelation might look like, it cannot conflict with scripture. I mean, it's gotta be consistent. And it's also going to be more localized and not universal as scripture alone is. Okay, a difference with Catholicism here as well. Scripture alone is not sufficient. You need tradition as well. Maybe you've heard this before. I know, Elliot, you've, you've bumped into to Catholic teaching before. This is what the Catechism says. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Scripture and tradition. The Reformation response to that was, no, <laughs> scripture alone, no, sola scriptura, that's Latin for scripture alone. The Reformation said, no, we base our beliefs and our practices on scripture alone. If there is tradition that is helpful to us understanding scripture or just helpful to us in practical ways to assist our lives, God bless it. 
But tradition is below the authority of Scripture. Scripture alone is what we need to be blameless. I don't need to obey tradition to be blameless. I need to obey God's word to be blameless. So that's that's a difference that we have with or that I have that Protestants have with Catholicism. There might be some questions, but how do how do we feel about that? I think that makes sense. I think part of me thinks like in terms of tradition, mm-hmm. like it could even be prayer as a tradition. Not in yeah. the same way that I would imagine Catholics practice their tradition. That's right, that's right. Yeah. But in some way we do have traditions that are good. No doubt. And okay yeah. And in scripture. But that's also within scripture. So that's yeah, that sure. into the sure. Yeah, you're kind of kinda of, Hans, you're kinda of unraveling the whole thing as you talk. So you're right. All of us have traditions. I mean when Hans and I grew up, we would, uh, before meals, we would say, we'd hold hands and we'd say, Frohlich seid us Abendessen. We're from a German family and we would say, happy be the evening meal. You know, so that everybody has tradition. Tradition's a good thing. What we don't want to do is be hyper-Protestant and throw everything in the trash can. You know what I mean? Like, okay, well, tradition may well be very, very, very good. As someone, this is me, I've read a lot of, like, the kind of like historical figures of Christian history and I've read their like works and I'm like wow this is really helpful I like it it's really beneficial right so I don't think it'd be right to throw it away which Hans I think is what you're saying but then you also said well hold on some of my traditions I, I can identify where we get them from the Bible mm-hmm. and that right there is I think what the Bible itself is asking us to do is say okay look if you're going to pray do so in such a way that's in accord with scripture if you're going to have church do so in accordance with scripture, right? Now our tradition, if Augustine says something, God bless him. I don't, I'm not bound to Augustine, <laughs> you know? And in fairness, the church would also say something similar, but when they ratify something as tradition, then it becomes authoritative on their view. And and that's where myself and Protestants will say, well, I wanna identify something as consistent with scripture but then do it because the Bible says it, not because Augustine said it, not because the church said it's tradition now, capital T. That's fine. You can have capital T, but I got, I got the Bible, capital B. You know what I mean? That, that's my, that's big, B for big, maybe. Uh, anyway, um, so, but yes, does that kind of address what you were yeah, talking about? Yeah, like, if someone were to say, hey, you need to sit around the dinner table and chant happy be the evening meal in German. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's getting a little culty. Like, we don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. But it's like, yeah. meant to be like, just a happy, fun, sure. lighthearted, yeah, sure. necessary sure. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And sometimes we can, as churches, I mean, people, maybe you guys have heard about the church that divided over whether you can put a coat on a coat hanger or on a peg or something. It's kind of like a famous church split that have, I, I've never looked into this, but I've heard. Sometimes we can take our little T traditions, like Frolish Zydus Abanes, and say, well, you don't do that. You're not family. You know, you know, and that's pretty unhealthy, man. I can put my coat, my coat, I didn't even bring it. I'm wearing my coat. I'm still wearing it. Is that cool? I uh, mean, I'm out of either church, you know, I can't, do, you know, but that, yeah. So anyway, we can elevate our traditions sometimes. And this is, maybe this is even convicting for us, Hans, because what we get comfortable with, we assume to be right, you know, and, and I think in some ways, sola scriptura brings us to even question our traditions, you know, like. Hey, why do you do what you do? You know, like, why are you doing any of this? Why do you have a whiteboard in church? Some people would be like, whoa, this is like reminding me of the secular government funded school, you know? And hey, maybe that's something to think. I don't, we don't have to have a whiteboard. We don't have to not, you know, so that, you know, but anyway, there are things that we do that we just don't question as, oh, this is how it ought to be. And sometimes we can forget that, oh, actually our traditions should be subject to the Bible completely and we should rethink how we do this all the time so i think that's a a helpful point against protestants as well oftentimes amen all right gentlemen here we are we did it